In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Morning, everybody. Morning. Good to see you all. If you don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm the associate pastor here for this community. Just a couple of things here before we turn our attention fully to the book of Genesis. First thing is just to say happy day to the moms in the room. We love you guys and appreciate all that you do. Yeah, we could clap for moms. That's great. <laughs> so anyway, enjoy your day and then carry on with the good work of raising up the next generation. The other thing I wanted to say is just a word of gratitude, a thank you to those of you who came out to the baptism celebration yesterday. I know it was a cold and rainy day, which probably made it difficult for some of us to get there, but it was really a sweet time. We were able to baptize five people yesterday. Man, just getting to hear people's stories and what God has been doing in their lives and to then celebrate that as a community and come alongside people making this 
public proclamation of their faith in Jesus is just beautiful. One of my favorite things that we get to do as a church. So we're looking forward to the next one of those, which is coming up in the fall. So if you missed this one, make sure you're able to come the next time we celebrate baptism. You don't want to miss those moments. One final thing before, again, we get into Genesis, and it's just to acknowledge, as Scott mentioned a moment ago, that we are in a new sort of season here in the life of our church with Albert and Katie being on sabbatical. Albert's been here on staff for about 14, 15 years. He's been the lead pastor for seven of those years. And so we are really excited to be in a place as a church where we can give him this kind of break. Uh, sabbatical is not just a good idea for professors, but it is something that is instituted in scripture in a lot of ways, this rhythm of rest. And in fact, as we get into the book of Genesis, we'll explore what that means a little bit more in the coming weeks. But for now, if you are interested to know a little bit more, if for some reason you've kind of missed this memo, the elder board has put together a letter that talks about sabbatical and a theology of sabbatical and why we feel like this is a good time for Albert to take this. And so if you're interested in that or didn't see a copy or get a copy of that, come talk to me or one of our elders and we'll make sure you get that. Now our hope is that in the meantime, things will function for the most part as normally as possible. Now the question of course is what does normal look like at Regen, right? But <laughs> that being said, we do expect things will function as normally as possible. It's great to have Jane here full time. We've got a great support team and things seem to be in a pretty good place to let Albert and Katie go do this. And so again, we look forward to them coming back, but I think also the next couple of months are gonna be really good for us too. So speaking of that, on Sundays, over the next 15 weeks, we're gonna be in the book of Genesis. And we're going to make it all the way through the book. Albert's not going to be gone long enough for us to go in our typical verse-by-verse -verse format, but we are going to make it through this whole book. And so I want to begin with answering the question, why Genesis? Why are we looking at this book, this ancient text? And so I want to answer that question to get us started this morning by telling a story. There's this great old story about a rabbi and this rabbi was alive at the time of Jesus and was a popular teacher and oftentimes was invited to go teach in other villages. And so one morning he goes off to one of these villages and leaves his home early in the morning, goes and he teaches all day. And then in the evening he decides to head home. And it's evening, so as he's heading home, of course, the sun is setting and it's getting darker and darker. And there's this critical moment on his journey home where he should veer to the left, but he instead in the darkness veers to the right, and this new path takes him right to a Roman military outpost. This outpost has big walls, and there's guards walking around on top of the wall, and it's a very intimidating presence. And so the rabbi's hesitant at first about what to do, how to proceed. Finally, he works up the courage to go knock on the door rather than turning around and journeying into the dark night. So he walks up to this big iron gate, he bangs on the gate with his fist, and from up on top of the wall, this large, well-muscled Roman soldier yells down at him, Hey, who are you and what are you doing here? And the rabbi, who already was a little bit nervous about this, his confidence is even more shaken, and now he's kind of wondering to himself, I wonder if I made the wrong choice here. But the rabbi is quick and clever and wise, and so he looks up at the guard and he says, Hey, guard, how much do they pay you? And this really throws the guard off. He's like, what? <laughs> what do you mean, how much do they pay me? What does that have to do with anything? What does that mean to you? The rabbi says, no, really, how much are they paying you? And the guard goes, well, pay me 10 silver coins a day. What is it to you? And the rabbi says, this is great. I will pay you 
twice that amount if you come home with me and ask me those same two questions every morning when I leave the house. Who are you and what are you doing here? <laughs> Who are you and what are you doing here? These are fundamental human questions. And they are questions that Genesis speaks to, and I would argue they are questions that Genesis helps us answer. And so we're going to spend some time looking at the book and interpreting what it has to say, but the backdrop of all of that are these really big questions. Who are you and what are you doing here? So let's pause here for a moment and pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are grateful, as we said, to be at a place in the life of our church where we can gift our lead pastor, Albert, and his family with a break, with a season of rest. And so this morning, we just pray over them as they begin this time that you would be protecting them and guarding them, that you would be giving them great moments together as a family, time to really be connected in a new way. We pray especially for Albert that you would give him the rest that he needs and that this time would really pour back into him, that you would have the space to be in deep relationship with you and in a conversation about what the next chapter of the life of our church looks like. And so we uh, look forward to his return and for the energy that this will bring to his leadership to our community. In the meantime, God, we pray for us that we would rally together to care for each other well during this time, to pray for Albert and Katie and to just enjoy what it means to be a community. Help us to grow in our ability to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly together. God, we also pray for those folks who were baptized yesterday and just ask for your continued guidance and presence in their life as they journey on with Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Help us now as we turn our attention to the book of Genesis, make it fresh and new for us. Speak to us, teach us, form us through your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 1, it's easy to find. You can turn now there. It's the first page. I guess the first important page. <laughs> so Genesis chapter 1, as you're looking for that, Another question, and this question is, when you think of the word home, when you hear the word home, what comes into your mind? For some of us, when we hear home, it's wrapped up or it's connected to all kinds of negative connotations, right? There's memories or realities that are negative. It was a place of fear. It's an unsafe place. Others of us may be on the completely opposite end of the spectrum. When we hear home, we have all these sort of warm and fuzzy memories and connotations and connections with the idea of home. Now, many of us, wherever we might be on that spectrum here in the 21st century in our hyper-mobile society, struggle to know what does it mean to be home? Where is home? Where do we call home? Pastor and Professor Craig Barnes writes, why are so many of us moving from one place to another? People are more and more interested in finding a good place to live. The good place has main streets with grocery stores you can walk to, neighbors you can bump into. It hasn't been wrecked by developers, strip malls, or busy four-lane boulevards. We hate that, especially here in Oakland and Berkeley, right? <laughs> then he says, we are looking for the good place Again, we are looking for home. 
many of us, again, struggle with knowing how to define home. And I think there's this reality deep down inside each and every one of us that we want it, but we're not quite sure how to find it. And then Barnes goes on to say this, home is more easily found with a poem than a map. And so it's interesting, it's fitting then that Genesis begins with poetry, begins with a poem, because Genesis, as we will see, is ultimately a story about home. So this then leads us to ask the question, why was Genesis written in the first place? Who was the original audience for this text? The original audience was a community of people called Israel. These were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we are going to become familiar with those characters here in the coming weeks. Most scholars would say that Moses is the author of Genesis, and if not Moses, then some people who were around Moses. They date the book to the wilderness period in Israel's story, this period of time where they've come out of slavery in Egypt before they enter into the land that God had promised them. So I want us to use our imagination here a little bit this morning and think about what it might have been like to hear this story for the first time. This group of people that Moses is writing to has spent 400 years in a foreign land in Egypt making bricks. 400 years making bricks. And during that time, they become more and more oppressed. And part of that oppression was the erasing of their history, of their story. Then all of a sudden, this guy Moses shows up and they are rescued. They are liberated from their slavery in Egypt by the hand of a God who had revealed himself to Moses as I am who I am, as Yahweh. So there's this amazing rescue, this incredible liberation. But then Israel gets out into the desert and they discover that the desert is hot and dirty. And they begin to question Yahweh. They begin to question this process that they are in and journeying to this land that they don't remember as home. And there's all these questions about should we go back to slavery? That's how bad the desert was. <laughs> Should we go back? Didn't we have it better when we were in Egypt? And so the result of all that is a rebellion, and the result of that rebellion is bonus time in the desert. They get to spend another 40 years out there wandering around. So the original Genesis audience is this ragtag community of ex-slaves and children of ex-slaves who are trying to find home, who are trying to remember their story, trying to remember who they are and what are we doing here in this desert. And so Genesis, and then there's four books that come after it, all probably written at roughly the same time, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, what we now call the Pentateuch. They tell this one big continuous story, and it's a story that's meant to shape them, to shape their communal identity. You might say that this is their origin story. Origin stories are important for people and cultures all throughout history. These days, they're very important to what? Comic books. Excellent work. Now, bear with me, especially if you are a comic book connoisseur. I am not one. But, and so if I mess this up, you can come talk to me afterwards. We'll have a conversation about it. But for the most part... An origin story serves as a sort of compass for the superhero in comic books. 
Okay? It helps remind them who they are and what are they doing here. And when the superhero loses or forgets their story, they lose that compass, they lose their conviction about their purpose. Superman, for example, loses his home planet of Krypton, and it then becomes his life mission to what? Protect Earth from a similar fate. Without that origin story, Superman is just an interfering, freaky alien guy. <laughs> right? But with that story as a grounding point, as his compass, Superman knows that his intentions are good and people can trust that his intentions are good. He's here to help and to protect. Batman loses his parents in an act of injustice. Injustice that is aided by corruption deep in the systems of Gotham City. And so Batman then becomes this seeker of justice. And in particular, he does this by trying to root out the corruption in Gotham. Now, without that origin story, Batman is this uber-rich, psycho, vigilante who wears a funny suit and has cool toys, right? But with it, with this story, again, as a grounding point, Batman now has a moral trajectory towards the goodness, the flourishing of Gotham City. Origin stories, so important because they help us answer these big questions. Who are we and why are we here? Now, one more piece of critical background. We will get to the actual text here, don't worry. But one more bit of background, and it has to do with the worldview of other people, or just of people in general, in the ancient Near East. And there are all kinds of books and studies written about this, so we don't have time to go through all of it. But I want to give just a couple of observations, again, about the worldview of people in the ancient Near East. So first of all, central to their view of the world was this idea of chaos, this experience of the world as unpredictable, as violent, as chaotic. When you look at Sumerian texts, Akkadian texts, Babylonian texts, Egyptian texts, you see these themes repeated again and again and again, chaos, violence, unpredictability. And in many cases, when you look at their origin stories in particular, we see that creation itself is a chaotic, violent act. Second, there's also, in their worldview, there was really no question about the reality or the presence of a god or gods or some sort of higher power. No question about that. But lots of questions about what are these gods like? What are they like? Are they even knowable? And is there a way to please them, to get them on our side? So Israel, having spent generations in Egypt, would have known, would have absorbed these stories and this worldview. And so they would have struggled with very similar questions. So again, imagine being out there in the desert with these folks. And this guy Moses is telling you, your origin story. And you've heard and experienced in some ways the power of this Yahweh. You know that he's rescued you, brought you out of slavery and oppression, but he's also brought you to this strange place. So these questions are, what is this Yahweh like? He's powerful, but is he good? He's amazing, but is he trustworthy? What do we do with this God? So, to the text, verse 1, we start in the beginning. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the text begins right out of the gate with this statement that God, Yahweh, is the creator. But verse 2 immediately jumps into this ancient Near Eastern theme of chaos. And these ideas of the void, the deep, darkness, a world without form, waters, all very familiar chaos imagery for Israel. Now, what begins to happen here, and as we start to move forward, we're going to see that there's a significant break from the typical stories. But before we get into that, I want to pause here and just answer the question, why spend so much time talking about Israel and the original audience and the ancient Near Eastern worldview? I think it's really important that we spend some time here and that we understand how this was heard for the first time. Because a lot of times in our modern minds, we bring the wrong set of questions to Genesis, and in particular to these early chapters of the book of Genesis. Modern folks, we struggle with Genesis 1 because we want it to work scientifically. We want it to answer all of our questions, and we want it to jive with what is being discovered in the world of science. Now, those are good questions, and they're worth wrestling with, but we need to hear this. We need to understand that Genesis 1 was not written to 21st century people. The author here is not answering our modern-day questions. And so one of the big distinctions that we need to make is this. The author of Genesis is not talking about what we might call material origins. This is not about big bangs or molecules or evolution or how old the earth is. Okay, again, our questions are not the primary questions being addressed here. The questions being addressed are, what kind of creation is this? What does this process tell us about this creator? What can we learn about this God from this account of creation? So rather than addressing material creation, the author here is speaking to what we might call functional creation. Now you may have heard me tell this story before, so I apologize for repeating myself, but this is a helpful analogy, I think. When I was five years old, my family, we moved from San Jose to Salinas, California to be a part of a church plant. And in the process of making that move, there were some folks at the church that we were part of in San Jose that said, after you get there, after you get to Salinas, find some property and we will build you a house. And that was like, whoa, okay, what an amazing thing for someone to say. But eventually that's exactly what happened. My parents found this property and then this group of people helps build a house and kind of the critical part of that story is in one day 75 guys wearing bright yellow shirts that said Boutry barn raising <laughs> came down and they framed and roofed that house in one day it's an amazing story my parents still live in this house they call it the house that friends built now when my parents tell this story what kind of story are they telling here's the thing they don't talk about grading the land and pouring the foundation and the nails and the bricks and the lumber that hold the walls together, they talk about what a gift this house has been. They talk about raising a family there. They talk about the ministry that has gone on there. The story they tell is less about the house and more about a home. Are you with me? 
So Genesis 1, in a similar way, is not so much about the concrete and the nails and the bricks and the lumber. It is much more about how the furniture is arranged, where the family room is, and most importantly, it is about the purpose for the home's existence. We might say it this way, Genesis 1 is not about the building of a house, it's about the creation of a home. And we'll get into this a little bit more next Sunday, but it's a home for God to dwell in relationship with people. Now, just to be very, very clear, in case you are confused at all about where I'm coming from, Scripture teaches very clearly that God is the source of material creation. We see this alluded to in verse 1, Job 38, an incredible chapter that speaks to God's role in creation. We see it in the Psalms and in a couple of critical New Testament passages. John chapter 1, which steals right from Genesis, says this, In the beginning was the Word, and as we read on in the Gospel of John, we learn that the Word refers to Jesus. So this text here is primarily about connecting Jesus and his divinity But it has a lot to say about creation. So we read on, The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Now it's kind of an awkward translation there in the ESV. But the critical word is all things. When you do a Greek study of that word and you kind of get into the context and all that, all things translates as all things. Amazing. Maybe the most important text concerning material creation can be found in the New Testament book of Colossians. This is Paul writing again about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, here it comes, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things And in him, all things hold together. You sense a theme there. Okay, scripture, again, leaves no doubt that it is God who created the material, who is the source and sustainer of all things. But again, Genesis 1 is less concerned with material creation and far more interested in, again, what we're calling functional creation. And in what those functions say about God the Creator. I think this is important for a couple of reasons. One, it helps us from getting lost in scientific debates. But more importantly, it keeps us grounded in the original intention behind the text and in these deeper questions of who we are and why are we here. So let's look now at the six days of creation, or I guess. In our case this morning, five and a half. And I want to start by just making a couple of really sort of big picture observations. So three big observations about the creation we see taking place in Genesis chapter one. So first, God speaks and then something happens. Okay, this is kind of an obvious thing, but it's worth considering here for a moment. So again and again we read, and God spoke, and God spoke, and God spoke, and each time he speaks, There's action. And something comes into being, and more specifically, something is given a purpose, a function. This act of speaking is incredibly significant. Going back to that verse from John 1, we see that it connects 
Jesus, the Logos, the Word, to the divine, but it also provides a contrast to these other creation accounts. Again, you read through these other ancient texts and God's created by using violence, by manipulating material, even sometimes by a sexual act, these other gods create. But Yahweh, all he does is speak. He just says it and it happens. His word is a powerful creative force. And here's the key thing. His word brings order from the chaos. So yes, there is this chaos imagery. There's the deep and the void and the darkness, but there's also God. God speaking, God hovering, God present and yet very distinct from the chaos. God bringing order. So first big observation is God speaking. The second is the rhythm of creation. And again, this speaks to the order that God is bringing to the world, the intentionality behind what he is doing. There's all kinds of debate about the days. We see this repeated rhythm, right? There was evening and there was morning the first day, evening and morning the second day, this rhythm and repetition of creation. All kinds of debate about whether these are literal 24-hour days or do they represent ages or some kind of progression of creation. I think to really understand what's going on here, the deeper significance of the rhythm of creation is the deliberateness, the intentionality, the rhythm of the creation. There's this sort of myth around creativity that like the really good stuff, it just sort of falls out of the sky into your lap. There's this connection between creativity and spontaneity. But the reality is, is that creativity is thoughtful, it's structured, and it's disciplined. Gustave Flaubert is famous for saying, be regular and orderly in your life so that you may be violent and original in your work. This is one of my favorite quotes. And we get a little bit hung up on the word violence, like, ooh, what does that mean? But what he's talking about here, what this is saying, is there's an incredible impact that comes through creativity that is disciplined and orderly. And this is true of God. This is how God creates. It's not a chaotic act. It's not a random act. It is thoughtful. It is deliberate. It is orderly. Now, the third big observation is that God looks at all that he creates and he calls it good. Again, this repeated thing. God speaks, something happens, and it was good. It was good. It was good. God is pleased with his creation. You sort of even get a sense of this delight, this loving delight in what he has created. Now, why is God pleased? I think, first of all, it just speaks to his nature that he loves to do this. He enjoys this process. I think he's also pleased because he's created some cool stuff. And I think we're privileged to live here in California where we can see a lot of the cool stuff that God has created. But beyond all that, again, it comes back to this idea of functionality. Creation is good because it is functioning properly. Everything is in its right place. This is how God designed it. And so therefore it is good. Now, a couple of observations about some more specific things. Let's look at the creation of each day here real quick. The first three days describe what we might call the creation of realms. 
Day one, God creates light and darkness, day and night. The text actually says that he separates them, putting them in their proper place. Day two, God creates sky and sea, again, separating them with this expanse. Day three, God creates land, and the word here is gathered, but it's the same sort of idea of separating the land from the water. The first three days, what is God doing? He is creating realms. He is ordering realms, which he is now going to fill with inhabitants or rulers. So day four, God creates the sun, moon, and stars, which inhabit the day and the night. God names the functions of the sun, moon, and stars. And the key word here is rule to describe how these inhabitants are to be in their realms. Ruling here has everything to do with functionality, with purpose. These celestial bodies are here to mark time, to give meaning to moments and seasons. Day five, God creates birds and fish to inhabit the sky and the sea. The birds and the fish are also given a functional role. Be fruitful and multiply. And then finally, we get to day six. God creates animals and humans to inhabit the earth. If we read a little bit beyond where we were, the same sort of charge to be fruitful and multiply. And we end in verse 25 today with this repeated proclamation that it was good. So realms and rulers, and we'll have a little bit more to say about rulers next Sunday when we look a little bit closer at the creation of humans. But I want us to land here with this idea that God looked at all that he created and calls it good. What does it mean when God says that creation is good? Well, we've already said that it has to do with his pleasure. He loves what he's created. He's pleased with it. It also tells us, and this is really important, and again, we'll dive more deeply into this in a couple of weeks, but it also tells us that evil does not originate with God or with his creation. The entrance of evil, as we will see, comes from outside of God's created and intentional ordering of the world. In fact, a way to define evil is it is about disordering the order that God has instituted. Disordering God's good order. Third, as we've been talking about, goodness speaks to the functionality of creation. Everything has a purpose and a proper place. And now this is where we have to talk a little bit about the difference between goodness, something being good, and something being perfect. What I mean here is this. Creation is not done. It's not static. It was always intended to go somewhere. It was moving in a direction. We see this even in the rhythm of the days. The sun and the moon need to rule. Birds and fish, animals and plants need to reproduce and multiply. And as we will see, humans need to help steward all of this creation so that it flourishes. There's ongoing work to be done. Creation is not finished, but it is good. Now, back to this analogy of the home. I'm guessing most of us have had the experience of moving at some point. If you've ever moved, you know that the process of moving can be crazy, right? There's boxes and mess and chaos. And then there's this process of separating and gathering and naming. You say things like this picture goes on this wall and put that bed in that room and the sofa is going to go here and face this window. And you begin to bring order from all of that chaos. 
And then there's a moment when everything is unpacked and put away. Everything is in its right spot, ready to function the way that you intended. And you sort of take this deep breath and go, yeah, we're home. This is good. This is the biblical idea of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that's often translated in our English Bibles as peace. But it is so much deeper and robust than like peace, man. Shalom is the idea of all things, all that God has created existing in right and proper relationship to one another. Everything in its proper place. Everything performing its intended role. Now again, just because you are unpacked and moved in, you have that moment of like, oh, we're home, it's good. You're not done, right? You have to keep it orderly. You have to clean it, vacuum, dust, all this kind of stuff. You may even move things around. You may even redo the kitchen or repaint the bedroom. You keep working at it so that it continues to function the best way that it can. That's the difference between good and perfect, good and complete, good and done. Okay, creation is good, but it is still going somewhere. Now, one final thought as we come in for a landing here. Good means that creation is good. That's my deep thought for the day. (laughs) There's this concept in the study of Scripture called the priority of first mention. The priority of first mention is the idea or the principle that what comes first helps frame and interpret everything that comes after it. This is so important to our understanding of Genesis, but also it's so important to our understanding of Scripture and of the bigger story that God is telling in the world. God's first word about the world that he has created for himself to dwell in relationship with humans is, it is good. Professor and philosopher James Smith writes, we're not just dawdling around in some anonymous cosmos. We are home. We're dwelling in God's world. This isn't just nature. It's creation. And it is very good. Genesis 1.31. Now, of course, we don't always or even often experience the world as good. And again, we'll see why that is in the coming weeks. But today, we need to sit with the first word, the priority of first mention, the goodness, the shalom of creation. So in a broken world, how can we trust, how can we know the goodness of creation? I just want to give three quick ways here before we move to communion. So first, as we've just been talking about, the priority of first mention shows us that the world God created is and always was intended to be orderly, functional, thoughtful, beautiful, and good. It was created. It was intended to be a good home for us to dwell in with God. The story starts with an incredible word of affirmation. It is good. It is good. It is very good. Second, we can trust the goodness of God's creation because of his willingness to enter into it. We see this in the incarnation, the truth that God came to us, that God moved into the neighborhood, so to speak, in the person of Jesus. In Jesus, we see that God continues to speak affirmation over his creation. Finally, we trust this goodness because of how the story ends. 
starts here with it is good and it ends here with the redemption of all things. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The story starts with it is good and it is affirmed all the way through to the end. This is our hope. This is what we look forward to. This is what we long for. This, my friends, is home. And it is good, so get used to it. Enjoy it. Make yourself comfortable. Make yourself at home. So one final question is this. Do you trust this? Do you trust this? Do you trust the goodness of the creation? And more importantly, do you trust the goodness of the creator who made all things and who holds all things together? Let's pray. Father, we admit that in our broken, sinful, fallen world, it can be really easy to lose the story and to experience the world as not good. And so God, this morning, as we consider creation and all that you have done to bring this world into being, to bring an order to the world, may it remind us of the goodness of creation, the, the intention behind all of this was to be a good home and to be in relationship with you. I pray this morning that we would grow to trust that more. I pray for those here today who have a really difficult time doing that or are actively resisting, trusting you in some way. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to see in a new way what it looks like to trust you and that it can be good to trust the creator, the sustainer of all things. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.